we recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free, or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to Shanna, Beetlejuice64, and Rumi for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online, or you just want to increase your financial support of the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. We are back with Southpaw Deep Space Nine, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a socialist, communist, liberatory perspective, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are at the last episode of season one, In the Hands of the Prophet. And just like the last episode, we're recording after another mass shooting this time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. I wanted to make that a timestamp for this episode, so when people listen to this in the future, they'll know what was going on, but also they'll know how long it's been going on because I'm sure this will continue. And what's wild in this whole debate is no one talks about the capitalist arms manufacturers and their role in all of this. And we got into this topic a little bit in our Palestine episode for Southpaw, we were talking more about global arms manufacturing, but it's the same companies that make munitions domestically. They make munitions internationally, which gets used for very bad purposes. So it's something that people have to also think about. I'll put the link in the show notes. But in other news, we released the Southpaw Liberation Martial Arts online curriculum. So you can find that as a tier on Patreon. So that's some good news. Please check it out. It's meant for collectives, trainers, individuals who don't want to rely on training from reactionaries. It's both the primary resource or you can use it as a supplement. It's both curriculum and pedagogy. A lot of us came to Southpaw because there's not a lot of leftist MMA analysis. In fact, <laughs> there, like there's almost none. You would think there would be a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> I had, I thought, I I gave credit to the mixed martial artists that maybe was undeserving. There's definitely beliefs I had about the martial artists that I knew before the pandemic, before George Floyd, before all of these things that totally changed. And then I decided that I cannot train with people that are not focused on certain things. So it's really nice to... So I found Southpaw just for some leftists to talk about MMA with. So, But now it, we're building like a family. Like The Discord is like a family. And that's how you found your current gym. That's true. But I was like, hey, is there is there a chud-free gym in Baltimore? And someone said Guardian. And then I showed up there. And the day that I go for my first class, 
my friend, the my coach friend Lakura is wearing a Southpaw shirt. Oh, and I and I was like, oh shit, this is a green flag, like the opposite of a red flag. And I I messaged you that night. I was like, this is a green flag. This is awesome because I'm not a, I'm not getting any younger. I'm not going to spend my time and money working on something, making people money that have no morals or are morally bankrupt or are just like objectively bootlicking chuds. <laughs> I'm proud of you for creating this thing. Appreciate it. So if you're not in the same situation as Scott, where you can find a local gym that you really connect with, that you're proud to be a part of, not just as a member, but also philosophically, politically, then that's the point of the Southpaw online curriculum. So check that out. That's what it's meant for. Or you're part of a gym, maybe it's a commercial gym, and you want a liberatory supplement. Or you're part of something you really enjoy, but you want something with a little bit more pedagogy, or you want help in problem solving some stuff, or you want some general fitness stuff, or things you can do on your own. It's for every comrade. It's awesome. And in other good news, we had some shaky moments and even a co-host change, but we made it to the end of season one. Yes, we did. Scott, can you tell us about this episode? Yes, I would love to. In the hands of the prophets, Netflix Order 19, Production Order 20, is the season finale of Deep Space Nine Season 1. We start with Miles and Keiko. They're walking around and enjoying some Bajoran treats that the new engineer that Miles is working with, a Bajoran, and Keiko jokes around about this, and Keiko is starting class and starts teaching about the prophets, which, as we remember, are the celestial interdimensional alien non-corporeal space peeps that exist in the wormhole that are also for the Bajorans, sort of their religious entities. However, she's teaching from a scientific standpoint and not from the religious standpoint or the Bajoran faith context of that the wormhole is a celestial temple. Then, as Keiko is teaching, we are introduced to Vedic Wynn, who interrupts the class and is upset that Keiko is teaching humanities, and Vedic Wynn says that by not teaching the scripture version, she will intercede in the teaching of Bajoran students. Miles is impressed by the new engineer who is Bajoran, but then Miles finds that his interlock, which is like a skeleton key that can get into, it's like a super multi-tool, it's missing. And Cisco, Keiko, and Kira discuss the incident with Vedic Wynn. Vedic Wynn is in the line to possibly be the Kai of Bajor. As we know, we lost the Kai earlier in season one. The Kai is the religious leader, the, the Pope, if you will, of the Bajoran faith. And though Wynn is on the line for it, she's not popular. She People don't like her. And Kira is arguing that science without philosophy is its own dogma and there's a disconnect and there's this you know vibe that's been going on in season 1 where Cisco and Kira discuss like we're from different places but when has some zealotry to her and is communicating with the families on Deep Space 9 
And then Wynn finally meets Emissary Cisco, but Cisco doesn't like to be called Emissary. He's made uncomfortable by it. Vedic Wynn says the orbs have told her that the teacher has blasphemed, and if she does not repent, there will be issues. Hint, hint. Miles is worried about his interlock because, again, this is a thing that can get you anywhere. And we find out that an ensign is missing. And then they find the missing interlock and find a lot, finds the log of the missing ensign who has likely died. As this is going on, a Bajoran vendor won't sell Miles and Keiko food that they, or, that they had at the beginning of the episode. Vedic is protesting outside of the school with Bajoran students and is starting a rebellion, is being passive-aggressive, and wants Keiko to teach about the prophets. Wynne asks that they will concede if Keiko will not teach about the wormhole at all. She can only teach about the wormhole if she teaches about the prophets. Keiko, she refuses. We go to Miles, Dax, Cisco, Kira, Odo are going over the dead ensign. Uh, Miles is confused because an ensign wouldn't steal a tool. Feels like something is afoot. Cisco and Jake discuss Galileo and not to be dogmatic, and that respecting both science and faith is important, and to deny importance of faith over science would make them just like win. There's a sort of like pluralism versus assimilation sort of culture talk, and the Federation and the Bajorans have this uneasy balance, and there needs to be some respect. So Cisco goes to Bajor to meet with Vedic Burrell, who's a progressive cleric, he thinks that what Cisco wants to do is fine, but he is hoping to be Kai and feels that he cannot mess with his chances by getting involved currently. He says that when he becomes the Kai, he will be able to help better. Kira and Cisco discuss the fleeting agreements and how this disagreement is going to create more problems. We, found, we find out that the ensign was killed before the power interruption. He was phased and killed before the, sk- the school issue. It looks like the power conduit was a MacGuffin, and that ensign was at the runabout at some point. The new engineer says everything is normal. The new engineer being uh, the Bajoran, Nila. If there was funny business, it seems that it was covered up. Neela says that she and Ensign, that she and and Kino, the Ensign, did not really know each other, that Federation and Bajorans don't really mess with each other like that. Unlike Miles, she sort of flirts. He fights the temptation. Some evangelical Bajorans have come to Deep Space Nine to support Vedic Wynn. Quark tells Odo, oh snap, we got the holy people. We got to double the Davo girls and libations. The ultra-religious Bajorans they are Dr. Horny of this episode. Quark knows nothing about the murder. Miles finds a runaround tech for Anomaly. Odo realizes that Kino went to find something and trying to do something. He was killed and that was covered up. Then, uh, content warning, especially if you're thinking about the things that were going on when we recorded this episode, the school that Keiko is teaching at is attacked. It is destroyed by a homemade bomb and an explosion, although no one is hurt. Wynne shows up, plays coy, and 
is low-key blamed for stirring discontent, and Cisco says that she does not speak for the prophets and that she came there to get followers, and she calls him soulless and arbiters of an irreligious future. Cisco says she should be ashamed. He is not enemy or the devil. There is banter, debate, and, di- and disagreement in Deep Space Nine, but she underestimated the vibe of it. Everyone is dedicated to a better understanding and not zealotry. Her rhetoric will not win. And win is big man. Cisco meets with Miles. Keiko is feeling better and will teach tomorrow. She will not let this shit get to her. Cisco supports this and says, I'm going to send Jake to class. We find someone was definitely trying to steal a runabout. Baral decides to visit Deep Space Nine because now that there is an attack, it's it's good. It's a political move. He wants to help clean the debris and create some peace. Then we find out that Neela is in cahoots with Wynn. They meet. Neela is likely responsible for the murder. They know about the runabout and that someone has eyes on it. There is a plan, and Neela is going to do something. And if and uh Wynn says, if she dies, she dies, because she's about to do something where she might not be able to escape. Miles is going through the computers and finds an anomalous file that supposedly Miles put in there, but it was not him. Burrell shows up. Miles finds out what is going on with the files. An escape route for something is to go off. Force fields are are set to go down. Security has been tampered with. Barrel meets with Wynn and asks her to come with him to the school to help rebuild. O'Brien realizes that it's very likely Neela is the culprit. Barrel and Wynn meet. Weapon detectors are scheduled to not notice that they're going to be there. Weapons are disabled. Neela may have disabled the weapon detectors. And then, as they're all meeting in front of the school, Cisco sees that Neela has a gun ready and tries to shoot at Burrell, but it doesn't happen. And then as she's taken off, she says, the prophet spoke, they answered the call. The prophet spoke, and they answered the call. Kira realizes that Wynn did this to stop Burrell from becoming Kai. Kira is upset that Wynn cannot be pinpointed to the attack, and she's starting to feel disillusioned with some of her beliefs. Kira and Sisko realize that they have made progress in the Federation and Bajoran product project. End of season one. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So I have some criticisms about this episode. On the surface level, I'm sure it comes off as progressive, but when you dig a little bit deeper, it's not as progressive as it might seem. Fair. I know this episode is a critique, but sometimes the criticism deserves criticism. And especially with today's eyes, it might read even more differently. So right off the bat, when O'Brien tells Keiko to try a jumja stick, she's a bit skeptical. 
O'Brien says it's better because it has natural sweetness, which he's implying is different from replicated food. Keiko doesn't get the big deal of natural versus made by science replicated food, which sets up the rest of the episode nicely. And I'm not going to lie, reminds me of the Monsanto defense that used to be so popular online years ago before everybody realized how shitty of a company Monsanto was. Now I'm bringing this up not because of any criticism of the idea of GMOs per se, but more about how reactionary some liberal to centrist to quote unquote apolitical pro-science people can get. And as problematic as being overly religious can get, there's also an arrogance to scientism. And it's interesting, the chief engineer is the one who is not overly wowed by science. The person who actually knows the most about science has the least air about it, which is mentioned later by Neela. You know, I remember having a lot of thoughts about engineered food and, you know, GMOs and, uh, and supposedly unhealthy additives. And then as I read more about food insecurity and did some research, there's no question that Monsanto is, is not a good company. It's not a good company. But there are, with, with the amount and issue of food secure insecurity that we have in this world, sometimes being able to, to adjust crops and make crops more available and in different times and get food availability to people, sometimes you have to choose that over having the high road. You know, it's really easy to live a microbiotic vegan lifestyle if you have a lot of money or live in a good place where the food is accessible. It's not so easy to do that for most people. So yeah, I think they were trying to say something good about the sugar stuff, but food is a, is a topic into its own. And one thing I don't think Star Trek tackles a lot is in Star Trek, in that future, everything is public. There's no private corporations owning any of this, right? So they can't make criticisms about science in real life because in real life, most of science and research is privatized, right? It's not public science. It's private science. So that also doesn't make a direct analog. So sometimes people will use sci-fi or think about science in a vacuum and talk about it in a context that does not reflect reality. So the idea of genetically modifying foods to help impoverished countries sounds good, but that's not what happens. Right. Fair enough. But modifying foods to make shitty food that's cheaper, that poor people can afford, that's a real thing. So if they buy that food, should I shame them for buying unhealthy food? Absolutely not. To your point about like, not everybody can eat this like very expensive type of sustainable diet. So it just is what it is. It's like a shitty situation all around, right? So then nobody should be smug. Nobody should be arrogant because it's just a bad situation. So that's the problem, right? When you have moral superiority in a very bad situation, then that's why it's arrogant and that's why it's problematic. If we could create food replicators and the food was anything close to an analog of the food we were trying to replicate, if used for the greater good, whether they would, we could 
solve a lot of our hunger and access issues. Would they do that? It's hard for me to believe they would, but it's like the the weird anti the sort of racism that gets put into like the MSG debate where MSG the what they say MSG makes you feel comes from a from a largely disproved article from 50 years ago but we don't we don't know that because we're told like oh well this is this and this is bad but it it's mired in in racism i think it's not a perfect analog but the closest analog i think to replicators be like 3D printers. Oh, shit. Yeah. Star Trek lives in a world where those 3D printers are available for everybody. Whereas here is patented, trademark owned, super expensive. When it came out, it was supposed to be that every home was going to have a 3D printer. And it's like, nobody I know has a 3D printer. Only like rich people or companies have 3D printers, right? Because the reality we live in, again, is privatized capitalism. So talking about things that could replicate things, things that could proliferate things as if we're living in Star Trek where that's available to everybody is intellectually dishonest. Because when we have things analog to that, no, it's privately controlled. It's controlled by people who want to make money off of it. So that's why we have to think of them as gatekeepers. And the tool, the knowledge itself isn't bad per se, but the gatekeepers are bad. And so we can't trust the gatekeepers, just like you can't trust knowledge from unreliable narrators. Absolutely not. Now, going to the classroom scene, it gave me Inherit the Wind vibes and the Scopes trial about teaching evolution in school. And I think Star Trek often tries to do homages to past movies or plays or books. What's different here, though, is the power dynamic. Here, the Federation has the power. The teacher is not the underdog, but part of the center of power. That's something people have to realize. Who has the power changes everything. So you can make an analog, but if the power dynamic changes, then the whole analogy changes. In the Scopes trial, the teacher was the underdog. Right. But in this world, that is not the case. Keiko is part of the Federation. The Federation has all the power. And Vedic Wynn is a very powerful person within a less powerful community, which is the Bajoran community which we get into later on about that too, how they are treated inferior. I guess if this was rewritten, they wouldn't have made it so new atheist and they probably would have made it more like critical race theory, right? Yeah, it would have been CRT. Then that would have been much better because then it's clear who the underdog is and like you're trying to uplift the voice of the powerless, whereas this scene isn't really that. Right, and and something that I thought about which I didn't think about the first couple times be- watching the show and with my politics changing is that Keiko really has a lot of power here. She's, she's like teaching these people who have been dealing with terrible shit for years. They're war torn. They are in, they are traumatized. Would it kill her to try to engage in the curriculum in a way that helps the people that she's trying to help. I actually think in retrospect, it goes against how I would teach in that situation. She's a little stubborn, don't you think? Yeah, she came off very much like liberal elite, right? Something we see every time there's an election. Yeah. And the liberals don't want to reach across to the working class people, right? 
they see them as, no, you got to meet me where I am, right? You got to be an educated elite rather than understanding the different material conditions and also having to understand that you have to bend and you have to compromise you in the position of power for there to be equity. You have to uplift them and you got to go down and meet them. Yeah. Whereas when I watched the show before, I was like, oh, she's the righteous one. And in in retrospect, I'm like, uh, I mean, I still think that that Vedic win is is not a good person and no is not really there to uplift those children. No. She's there to to gain political foothold. But in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, Keiko, you could have you could have done better there. And it's like watching the elections where it's like smug, annoying liberals arguing with conservatives and you don't like either one of them. Yeah. Or just like trying to watch uh I tried to watch Bill Maher recently and just like the he is a smug man who lacks empathy and compassion totally out of touch thinking it's hip to talk about lgbtq issues like he really cares about him anyway i don't know if he's actually a star trek or ds9 fan but if there is a version of bill maher that exists somewhere that is a star trek fan he probably loves this episode considering his positions oh yeah now, later on, when we see Cisco talking about the classroom incident, it relates to something James said in our last episode, how it's Cisco's job to groom Bajor to be a part of the Federation. James mentioned how the Federation didn't want Bajor to become too religious. I don't know if the Federation wants Bajor to be a secular world, but it definitely seems like there's some projection of NATO or the EU or whatever to gain entry into this, you can't be too religious. You have to buy into neoliberalism and hoping that they will go with their values and hope that they will eventually be part of the Federation. But that's also a political maneuver as well. It's funny how they think they're being too preachy with their religion when the Federation itself is being too preachy about how you have to adopt our values. Yes, there's some hypocrisy. And the writers definitely probably thought that they were so clever when they wrote that episode. (laughs) But times have changed. Yeah, it's a very Gen X episode. Oh, yeah. Heavy-handed as well. Trying to be, we're edgy, we're Gen X, we're extreme, we're atheists, we're proud of it. Taste the rainbow, oh, yeah. Now, going back to something you said earlier, about how you would teach, right? Both the Federation and Keiko in this episode don't seem culturally informed. Right. Keiko especially came off as being not interested in being culturally informed. And it's not to the level of the Borg, but the Federation too expects a certain level of assimilation. I know the writer's intent was to make us think of the Scopes trial, but I also couldn't help think of residential schools. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's because... In the last couple of years, we had so much uncovering of residential schools and what assimilation and liberalizing of the quote-unquote natives, what that really looks like when you're not culturally informed and when you're not meeting them where they are, what that looks like. Not saying that Keiko would go that far or the Federation would in this universe, but as viewers, how do we not think about that now, right? And this goes back to not only care-informed education that respects 
indigenous cultures, but also to standpoint epistemology. Liberalism, like I said, is all about meet us where we are, but liberatory education should be about meeting you where you are. Right, which is also one of the first tenets of most social work models, to that in order to help people, you have to meet them where they're at, understand their language and codes. Um, that's why there's a big thing going on around with the importance of profession, mental health care professionals that understand African-American vernacular English, because, you know, literally, I read about someone, someone almost got CPS called on them because they said to their therapist, oh, my mom slaps in the kitchen. Or like someone saying to a doctor, like, how you doing, fam? And the doctor thinking that they were delirious. <laughs> right? So like, these sort of cultural things are important. Like this is something that we learn in social work school and especially in my trainings that cultural competency and cultural relativism is important. And if you're going to be working with people that come from a different culture, it is your duty to understand their culture, respect their culture, be willing to learn about their culture, be willing to have someone from the culture teach what one person may think of as a hallucination may be completely normal in a different culture. So the the more you and I talk, the more I realize that it's kind of shitty that they Keiko, who is trying to do a good thing and make the best of her situation, like that's not what she does. That's not her passion. That's not what she does really for a living. So teaching is just something that she's doing and which also gives like some, you know, Dangerous Minds vibes, but it's different because, you know, she's not Michelle Pfeiffer, obviously, and there's there's different dynamics, obviously. I mean, you can say that she's pro-science, but you can't say she's care-informed. Yeah, it's hard. And I feel like she could have she met them where they were at, especially considering where they were coming from, which was like an ethnic cleansing. And the Bajor, for the Bajorans, their faith and their ethnicity and their personhood are all intertwined. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. And I think there was also a type of projection where it was trying to compare like Bajorans to like religious conservatives in the US or maybe even in other countries or relating being religious as all being flat and the same. And it's like, you know, if these were like in the U.S., let's say, religious, conservative, white supremacist, settler Christians, right? Then you don't need to uplift them. And that's not an indigenous culture you have to try to preserve. And it's also not the powerless culture, right? Right. It's not the oppressive culture. So you can't compare that to like creating a school in an indigenous reservation and then trying to poo-poo all of their beliefs. Those are not the same. Right. Not the same at all. 
So I think this episode didn't try to differentiate for the two. And we're coming from that Bill Maher style of like, oh, it's all the same. The problem with the world is religion and people are too religious and that's the problem. Yeah, but also Bill Maher is so smug and impressed with himself that his movie about religion was so poorly done because he (laughs) didn't even have the respect or need to like put thought into it because of his premise that religion is just intrinsically dumb. What I don't get about people that smug is like, they actually seem the opposite of smart to me, right? They almost seem sheltered because like, I'm an atheist. Most people I know are atheists. So it's not that impressive to be an atheist. It's like not that big of a deal. It's quite normal. Then how are you so impressed with yourself by being an atheist, right? It's not that unusual. It's not that impressive. So it makes me feel like, I don't know who he's hanging around with for him to feel like he's the smartest person around. And Coulter and other reactionaries. (laughs) Yeah. And also, he's not really an atheist. Bill Maher and his dark web friends are all about Judeo-Christian values, right? So he's talking about Judeo-Christianity as a culture. So he's not an atheist because he still adopts Judeo-Christian values, whatever the fuck that means, right? As if like Christianity was like actually very kind to Judaism. But he's saying culturally he buys into those things, right? So that's why he still aligns with religious people on certain topics and views, even though scientifically it makes no sense. And even from like, if you're trying to be neutral, it makes no sense, but he does it because from a cultural lens, he has the same religious values as them. Right. He might just not believe in some kind of creation story. And that's what I thought Cisco handled pretty well when talking to his son and talking about other stuff that pure science can be its own sort of religion and zealotry and have its own dogma and strict adherence. And that he is suggesting that there needs to be a respect and an understanding for all things. He's trying to be a cultural relativist, even though if he comes off a little corny in that part, but he's trying his best. He's trying to, trying to avoid another episode of Deep Space Nine almost falling in turmoil because of (laughs) the issues between the Bajorans and the Federation. I think he's almost like engaging in moral philosophy and he's like trying to show how you can't answer questions from moral philosophy by just using science. I can't learn liberatory politics from Bill Nye the science guy. So I think he was trying to tell his son, science is real, science is useful to describe things, but it has its limits. It can't prescribe things. It can't tell you what to do. Right. And even then, it only answers those things mechanically, right? It can't explain necessarily socio-political reality, social dynamics, things like that. Right. Then later on, there was a scene with Neela, which I mentioned earlier where she was talking to O'Brien about how there's a de facto segregation on DS9 with the Bajorans and the Federation and how Bajorans felt discriminated by the Federation and how she literally says O'Brien doesn't have that same air, that same arrogance, right? 
which sounds like Federation people look down on Bajorans as being backwards. Yeah. Or quote unquote savage or native, right? That's a term we heard a lot. Frontier is another term that we've heard a lot. So all those things. So that was a very interesting scene. They played more into the new atheist kind of scenes, but this was a scene I wish they expanded on more from a standpoint, like seeing where the Bajorans were coming from, right? We know Vedic Wynn isn't a good person, but where was somebody like Neela and other people like that coming from for them to even turn to Vedic Wynn? Dealt with a decades-long you know, occupation that was a, a kid to a genocide. That's where they were coming from. They came from occupation to now the Federation coming and treating them as second-class citizens. I'm pretty sure this isn't intentional, but it almost reminds me of the dynamics maybe that the writers just put into unconsciously the end of quote unquote slavery, right? Which in a lot of ways it didn't really end, but that end officially to Jim Crow laws. Now, overall, this episode reads differently for me after the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan, Islamophobia, new atheism and the popularity of atheist chuds and logic bros. So it's hard for me just to side with the atheists, even though, like I said, I'm an atheist. Like, I know how shitty they can be if atheism is their only political lens, which often defaults to white supremacy and imperialism. And they just think those things are scientific. That's just science. That's the default. And they often have this arrogance of like, I don't need cultural and political education. I only need science. And it's like, get the fuck out of here. No, they're their own form of terrible, and their logic is unsound. It's just logic, bro. Yeah. Or just like, if someone tries to to reference that book, The Bell Curve, I'm just like, oh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> that is a bad faith book of just bad science. Even if you're trying to have like a good faith argument, once that book is mentioned, that's it. You have to step out. That They've gone too far. Yeah, it's often like, okay, I'm done. Then we get to the religious terrorism part and attack on school. And with everything that's been going on recently, historically, since the airing of this episode, not going to lie, this episode made me uncomfortable. And especially after all the things that we talked about, especially Islamophobia, right? This scene definitely feels like a kicking down yeah. on a people who've already been devastated by U.S. wars. Do you th do you think Vedic Win had somebody do that, or do you think they were inspired by her? Yeah, like they didn't really clarify that, right? So I don't know. What we do know in the U.S. is when things like that happen, it's not from outsiders doing it. It almost always happens from within. So their perception of like you know it could be Bajoran terrorists that framing I didn't like. Even though in the plot, that's probably what happened. It was probably Bajoran religious people who did this. But then like, I don't know what their evidence for that was, right? It's like, this happened. You had a motive. Clearly you did it, right? Did I miss a scene where they found some kind of concrete evidence to make an accusation? No. And I'm not, I'm not certain that she did. She was involved in it. I think she was happy with it happening. But again, there she's coming to deep space nine and drumming up all this support and showing love and 
you know, she's a character to, to watch out for. I mean, a lot of this episode was setting up season two and beyond more than it was a season finale, right? Yeah. I get that. But this whole presumption of guilt with no evidence, like no process, no trial, no forensics, no nothing, that also made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? Especially in the way we see how policing works against especially Black people in this country, right? So there's a lot of things with the writers at the time and probably the room, which is probably all white, they weren't thinking about. Absolutely not. Yeah. Then at the end, we find out this was all about a power struggle between religious factions, which also felt like this isn't for white writers in the U.S. to criticize when the West's hands, as you previously stated, Scott, is not clean. Right. Especially when the U.S. and the West in real life does not act like the Federation. It's much more like Cardassia. America's Cardassia, bro, and it's fucking me up. <laughs> You're like, you have to watch it five times to realize America's Cardassia, and then it'll fuck you up. Right, and you also have to spend the time that it takes to deprogram your brain to think that America can't be the bad guy. So it comes off like liberal centrist apologia of the U.S. and its allies. Like You look at what the British did in India, where they exacerbated the caste system to do divide and conquer. You look at the U.S. and how the U.S. pits racialized minorities against each other. You look at the invasion of Iraq and they had Iraqis turn against each other, right? They had the good Iraqis, the bad Iraqis, which created even more tension and conflict. Americans don't know that and they just look at two sects or two factions and just make up some story in their head. They've just been fighting for thousands of years. Yeah, which is not the, not the case. Yes, often the work of statecraft by empire. This instead was pushing more of the line of like, this is just what happens when you have religious people. They just start fighting. It's just natural for native cultures, indigenous cultures to fight with each other. It's bullshit. Yeah. This felt very much like something we've heard a lot after 9-11 about like good and bad sex. So this episode just makes that seem a feature of unlightened culture without thinking about the foreign policy and imperialist actions that preceded it. I did an interview with Palestine Action, and we talked about this divide and conquer tactic that's been used historically and still used, and it's a great addendum to listen to after listening to this series. So check out that episode on the Southpaw podcast, not on this podcast, and the episode is titled On Palestine, and I feel like it's an important one for people to listen to after this to even have a better understanding of the illusions of the occupation of Palestine that DS9 could make and the illusions and the analogies that we will make in analysis of DS9 going forward. So I'll put that in the show notes, like I mentioned. But overall, it wasn't a strong episode, in my opinion, and not nearly as good as Duet, but probably still better than <laughs> the rest of the season. But it did what it was supposed to, which was to set up the stage for season two more than it felt like it was an actual finale of tying up all the different plots that have been coursing through season one, because season one didn't really have that. Season one was very much more like episodic. Each episode was self-contained. Yeah. So it, it's just sort of like dropping a little bit of crumbs of 
what might happen or suggestions. Yeah, it's not like one of those old school season finales where all these things are are tied up and all these things are answered. But in classic Trek, like sometimes season finales weren't even that have that much fanfare, you know? Now that we're at the end of season one, Scott, thoughts about season one? So season one has to exist for season two to be there and for season three and for the show to grow. Most people that love the show admit that the first season can be a bit of a slog. It doesn't mm-hmm. quite get its legs. So just like how this podcast series has shaky moments, season one itself of DS9 had some shaky moments. Absolutely. And, but we have to get there to get here, you know? So season one, on a scale of one to five, I give it a three. It's not terrible. It's not brilliant. It has moments. Duet was obviously the episode of the season. You're really meeting all the main characters. You're getting to know their motivations. You're learning about them. You're seeing positive male role models, uh, father figures. And again, I probably would not have on my next rewatch revisited season one at all. (laughs) And Neela was the character who had a cameo in Duet. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned that you've watched DS9 multiple times, but did you gain anything from listening to then participating in this podcast series? 100%, yes, because I... Deep Space Nine is just, it, it is my favorite show. And as I'm revisiting, as I'm, as my leftism and my belief system are getting stronger and the foundations are built, I want to revisit the things I love and see if they're, if they're still worthy of love, if they're still worthy of protection, if they're still worthy of discourse. And I can, with, with Deep Space Nine, with Southpaw Deep Space Nine, I can unequivocally say yes, that it's been really enjoyable to rewatch these episodes and then listen to at first you and Angel talk about it and have like little meme moments like Dr. Horny and stuff, and then be on an episode challenging myself. The first episode I was on was was about the Nagus. And it was really, it was like a lot of fun for me to challenge myself because it was not my first choice of the episode to be on, but I wanted to challenge myself. And yeah, it's totally changed the way I've enjoyed it in a very positive way. And I think that's the important point. Yeah, you can know something, but discussing something, even if you know it, are two different experiences. Absolutely. In discussing something, you might gain more knowledge than you even had before. I mean, for me, because this is my first time around. Everything is me gaining something. But even for people who've watched the series before, hopefully from listening to this series, they gain something that they didn't gain as passive viewers previously. I hope so. And yeah, a lot of people have been like, this is really the the episode by episode Star Trek show that I've wanted because there are episode by episode Star Trek shows, but they're largely apolitical and just like not focused on the things that we're interested in focusing on. I think in a way it was like you 
leading me through Star Trek and like teaching me about that universe. But then it was bi-directional and I'm kind of leading you through some new political thoughts. Facts. I love that. And I think for listeners and even for us participating, right? The thing about sci-fi is it gives us what if scenarios that sometimes help us clarify some of our own positions and beliefs. And that then can help us interpret real life situations. You know, I really am grateful to, you know, unpack and revisit this series that brings me so much joy. And that in unpacking it this way, it still brings me so much joy. And as underwhelming as season one was, we still had a lot to talk about. So exactly. (laughs) Going forward, there's going to be even more to talk about. Oh, yeah. With all that said, thanks to all of you who spent your time listening to Scott, Angel, and I discuss all of DS9 season one. Since DS9 was a network show, it was kind of a long journey. Lots of episodes, lots of effort. So remember to give the Southpaw Network a stellar review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, support us on Patreon. You can find all pertinent info at southpawpod.com. Since DS9 goes by seasons, we're also going to be taking a break before we come back with season two because this was a lot of episodes to make a lot of episodes to watch, a lot of episodes to think about. But we'll be sure to let you all know on this feed, but also on social media, when season two of Southpaw Deep Space Nine is back. But to give the audience a bit of a teaser, Scott, can you tell them what they can expect from DS9 season two? Oh, I'd love to. Season two gears up and defines the mythology and framework of what will lead us into the rest of the show. Year two comes with growing pains. We see bits and pieces of Bashor and extremism, Cardassia trying to reclaim the glory, and it finds its footing, and the underpinnings of the big bad appears. I hope y'all enjoyed this season of SDS9, season one. I hope we meet you all again for season two. Hug the ones you love and be good to each other. All right. Until then. Ta-da-da-da.